Good morning. We'll have a couple of announcements this morning. Kind of the same old stuff here. Uh, uh, you're offering envelopes again uh, in the box. Uh, Andrea is still our contact number. Days of praise and acts and facts are, are now available. Our baby bottle driver, has anybody been getting the baby bottles yet? Okay, they're out there. Uh, to be filled and then brought back uh, on Father's Day. Uh, Claire Mae Westfall's family is postponing her memorial due to the COVID. And we have uh, an item this morning that we feel needs to be addressed. It has to do with the uh, proposal of the, of the portico uh, the building of, of the portico. Uh, we're going to dis dispatch with that uh, first thing so uh, it doesn't interfere with the service. Um, have most of you read the, the, the sheet, the, the report? If, can you take a minute and just kind of glance over it? And then I will expand on it. Everybody up to speed? Okay, if I may, <clears throat> on Wednesday's last, uh, we had a discussion, Dale Donovan and myself, with a Chris Wolf, and it, it re re revolved around the purchase of the four acres of land, or, or in this case, 3.8 acres, uh, for his use. 
uh, I'll cut to the chase about uh, the options and if I may I'll, I'll read option one uh, and this was all hashed out uh, by the three of us uh, option one for the value of 3.8 acres of land owned by Thornville Baptist Church at a price of $11,000 per acre Mr. Wolf would pay cash in the amount of $44,000 giving Mr. Wolf said acreage while increasing funding for the Thornville Baptist Church to finance the portico project. Option two, for the value of 3.8 acres valued at $42,000, Mr. Wolf, said contractor, will purchase all materials, excavate for and pour footings, pads and piers, set steel columns, attach cross members and all bracing. Thornville Baptist Church will be responsible for setting trusses, hanging roof subdeck, which is the OSB, putting down tin, which is the finished roof, and all subsequent tin and materials and trim. Option three. In addition to option two, Mr. Wolf will additionally install all roof trusses, OSB, roof tin, for an additional sum of $7,000. The deacons and elders are confident that option three represents a fair compensation to both parties, leaving only the cement flat work and trim to be completed by the church membership. And it goes on, the board also understands that even though there is a set and agreed price of $49,000 in value, property for the labor and materials, the severe fluctuation in material costs may cause a potential cost of up to $3,000 and would most likely be absorbed by Thornville Baptist Church. Respectfully, Phil Grapenton and Dale Donovan. At this point, I'd like to open uh, the floor for a quick uh, debate and discussion. If anybody has any questions, we'd certainly like to have them. Anyone? Yes. Okay. Uh, we also have had some very benevolent donators uh, to the church over the last couple of years. We have a savings account uh, that's designed primarily for building maintenance, new construction, which is in the sum of $16,000, which would more than cover the additional cost financially to us. One of the reasons that we feel that, that this option three would be the best option for the church is that we have a single individual that's willing to take land in experienced contractor. He is a neighbor of ours. Uh, working on commercial buildings is basically his forte. He's done a number of structural steel projects in the past 
I and Dale and the other members have uh, very much confidence in his abilities and his, uh, we believe that he would do this in a timely and professional manner. There are a couple of other points that I did not put in here. There has to be also a survey done. Mr. Wolf has expressed in a, in a prior meeting that he would uh, split the cost of survey with the church. That would uh, reduce a little bit of the cost to us. Uh, Dale uh, just noted to me that uh, Mr. Wolf also knows a competent surveyor, so I guess it, it pays to be in the, in the business. You get to know people. So uh, Mr. Wolf has also agreed that he will not take title of the property until there is a satisfactory inspection done on the portico. Dale, have I left anything out? Noted and agreed. Uh, any further comment or discussion or questions? Yes. Jess. I'm speaking. I'm speaking only for myself on this, and I can't speak to what the other mindset is of the, of the board members. It's been my experience that when prices go up, they very seldom ever go down, uh, especially in, in uh, expendable building materials. Uh, OSB a year and a half ago was $9 a sheet for a 716 sheet. It's over $30, closer to $40 a sheet now. It's gone up 300%. If it, if it settles down, it'll settle down 20% or 30%. But as we all know, the way inflation is, there's talk of more COVID shutdowns. Uh, if you're watching any of the uh, distorted news that we watch, and who knows what the future's going to bring for us as far as uh, purchasing and, and, and continuing on. Uh, a year from now, it could be cheaper. I'm of the opinion that it could be quite a bit or substantially more expensive. Sheila. Also, when she had mentioned that Mr. Wolf uh, uh, said he'd like to get this done as quick as possible so that he could get all the materials ordered. And he said if they're ordered, That's, in, in, in theory, that's correct. Oftentimes, though, in the business world, prices will change regardless of what kind of a contract we have. And I think that it would be incumbent on us to consider this factor if Mr. Wolf 
goes out to pick up the trusses and then there's a, a two week or a month waiting list to get the trusses and they come back half again more expensive or at least 20 or 30 percent more that's a control that he has no control of Dale That's, that's correct. Was Joe? That that's been completed. Uh, the the architectural drawings are completed. They're paid for, and we are now waiting on a church's decision to go forth with this. I would personally, I am. I understand what Jess is meaning by this, but it scares me to death to see what the potential for building materials will be in four years from now. Not just not just the tin, not just the lumber, but the concrete labor is going to go up. There's so many factors involved in this, which he has factored in, that even if we have to pay two or three thousand dollars more for uh, material costs that none of us could have any possible control over. Time, I believe at this point, is not our friend. So I, I would urge uh, the, the membership to consider acting now. We can generally freeze in the price 
Uh, and again, there's always a caveat that something may come up and cost us a little bit more money. Dan? The portico itself, the square footage is 25 foot by 26 foot. That would allow you to park four cars under the structure. And still drive through? Are there any more questions, comments? Seeing none, I, okay, Joe. After the port after the portico is constructed after the portico is constructed it will be incumbent upon the church membership to do the concrete flat work which is going to raise the elevation under the portico to make a seamless entry into the church no ramps uh, you would be able to go in, but we would have to raise the grade up a little bit. There would be a slight ramp on either side of the portico going up and then stopping under the portico. At some point in the future, we are going to, we are planning on doing asphalt in the parking lot in general. But for the time being, after the portico is completed, then we will put the cement, uh, which is something that uh, the deacons and a couple of volunteers could, could do easily on a Saturday or Friday afternoon. So, have I explained everything to satisfaction? Any other questions, comments? Okay, I'd like to call the questions and entertain a motion. Call the questions and entertain a motion to go forward with this. Usually it's customary for someone to put a hand up to make a motion. Sheila. I make a motion that we accept option three uh, at this point. We have a motion to accept option three to go forward with it. Is there a second? Dale? Dan? Yes. There will be a there will be a, a legal contract involved in this. And we're talking about getting Tim Denning to do that. Yeah. 
Yes, Dale. That is, that is, I think, a small, yeah, it's a small aspect of the, of the deal that we can contend with. I think the most important is getting through this aspect now. <clears throat> but yeah, you're right. We should, we should make sure that we have a competent surveyor. All right, we have a motion and, a, and seconds uh, to using option three to uh, construct our portico. I would ask uh, all those in favor, signify by hand. All those opposed, same sign. The ayes have it. Thank you. Now, we'd like to continue on with our service. <coughs> Scripture for meditation is taken from the book of 1 John. 2, chapters 15, or verse 15 through 27. That'll be page 1900 in your pew Bible.
I have a couple more additions to the announcements, if I may. Uh, first, I'd like to uh, read a note from uh, Brother Ken Jones, who's been watching us on the internet during this COVID issue. Much thanks to Pastor Fred for the wonderful and outstanding sermons leading up to Easter concerning the message of grace. Ken Jones. Thank you for the, the kind words, brother. Also, a pastor alluded to the fact that if someone would, would wish to help continue in the, uh, the funding of the portico, they could just write a check uh, and note portico on it, and it'll go to that, that cause. Would you stand with us as we begin our opening prayer? Father in heaven, as we come before you this morning, we pray your presence to strive amongst us, that your Holy Spirit would commune with us, Lord, and grip us and gird us, strengthen our hearts and our resolve. Allow our petitions to be cast to your feet, that you would find favor with them, Lord, and that your essence and your presence would be with us this day and always. Have the pastor's words convict the hearts of the lost and console the hearts of those who are yours be with us O Lord give the pastor strength as he brings forth the message that the words from his mouth have an everlasting effect on those who would strive to be with you now be with us father as we continue on in this service in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord and Savior Amen Take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number, no, that's not it, is it 436? 436, 436. And just so you know, we are going to be skipping the um, congregational hymn. Dale gave me a hymn this morning. Dale will do it next week, <laughs> just because of time. So 436 in the brown.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. It's going to be page 17 in your fuel Bible. Chapter 12, verse 10 through 20. When you've uh, arrived there, please stand with us. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. As he was to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants, and maidservants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious disease on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Father in heaven, we pray that you would add your blessing to this holy and inspired word. Amen. You take your brown hymnal again. I'm going to turn to number 438. 438.
Scripture text this morning is found in the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verses 10 and following. In our last study of the patriarchs, we were able to see the truly pilgrim aspect of Abram and Sarah's life as together they scoped out the boundaries God laid out for them and then with each construction of an altar, they claimed the land Thank you, by faith for God. So that's just a indicative of their life. Wherever they went, they built an altar. They prayed to the Lord, and they dedicated that land to the Lord. We learned in one sense that geography was very important because the land was the first plank in God's promise to Abraham. God always keeps his promises. By the way, the boundary was vast. Think about this. From the river Euphrates to the great river of the Nile in Egypt. You know, you probably have maps on the back of your Bible. Check that out. From the Euphrates north to the Nile River. That's the great fertile crescent. You studied that in school, I'm sure. Vast track of land. Vast track. So this was not a small thing. But from a spiritual aspect, we learned, however, that geography was not important because God's promise to Abram was not just about land, but more importantly, about people. Nations of people, which would rally around Abram's son, not Isaac, but Abram's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We learned that the Abrahamic covenant, indeed all the covenants made by God with the patriarchs, find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He is, after all, called Abraham's promised seed by the Apostle Paul. Galatians 3, verse 16. And faith in God's promised salvation makes us Abraham's children. The number of spiritual heirs in Abraham's family consists of, get it now, nations, nations, plural. Let me read it for you. Found in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. 
And with your blood you purchase men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Revelation 5, verse 9, verse 10. And then we looked at the fourth identifying mark of Christ, or Abraham's family. And that was a circumcised heart, the fleshly lusts cut out and discarded so that we can serve Christ in holiness unencumbered by ongoing sin. How marvelous is that? As we come to our study today, then let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the fact of what you've done. The Abrahamic covenant which centers around the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you keep your promises. And because you do keep your promises, we are safe and secure in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who would have thought that way back in Genesis you would have set your heart and affection upon a people for your namesake and that we would be among the named. That's scary. That's humbling. It is also wonderful to contemplate. Because what you determined way back in Genesis, you have completed in our day and age, and you're not one to renege on your promises. Your promises are solid. Amen and amen, the scripture says. And that's why we're safe today in the bonds of your love. Now bless us as we study today's study. And we ask that you will encourage us by what you have accomplished for us in Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. We see from our text that <clears throat> Abram went to dabbling, dabbling in the world, went down to Egypt. What's he doing in Egypt? Come on, guy. Is that really where you should go? It's only because of the overarching providence of God that he's rescued from this Sorry, in Egypt. Dabble, dabble as I travel. Let me have a little fun. God will understand my battle. He knows I'm a bit unstrung. Just a little trip to Egypt. What can it really do? I can trust my God to fix it. All the dangers to subdue. Life's no joy without some leisure. The world is full of gaiety. What's wrong with harmless pleasure if it sets my worries free? Consequences then or now? No time to think of these. The only focus of my brow is Egypt's Nile breeze. Did you know 
that sometimes in Scripture, God's people were actually told to go to Egypt. They were. To Jacob, Abraham's grandson, God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. I will be there to make you into a great nation. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Genesis 46, verse 3 and 4. Of Mary's husband, another Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus, an angel sent by God warned him in a dream, Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So get up. He got up and he took the child and his mother during the night and he left for Egypt. Matthew 2, verse 13 and 14. So these are two accounts in which God actually approved of his people going to Egypt with the promise that God would be with them. Now that said, because Egypt stands for the world in Scripture, Isaiah's warning is the norm. It's the norm. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in multitudes of their chariots and in great strength of their horsemen, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Isaiah 31, verse 1. Now look at our text. Which of these two scenarios applies to Abram? Did he go to Egypt at the bidding of God? Or did he go to Egypt for help with a problem? Verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. The text says, Abram went down to Egypt to live there. There was no directive from God to relocate to Egypt. Abram did this on his own. God was silent on the matter. It was Abraham's own decision. To him, it was the reasonable thing to do. He could figure it out intellectually, which he did. The famine, excuse me, the farms in Canaan are drying up. Wheat and barley and oats are scarce commodities here. They're getting scarcer, but farther south, there's food aplenty. So I think that's where I need to go. So obviously Abram went to Egypt to get relief from the famine and to assure himself that there would be foodstuffs enough to sustain him and Sarah and his servants? I mean, think about this, guys. Severe circumstances call for severe solutions. I'm just using my brain. You remember in later history, Naomi, wife of Elimelech, along with her two sons, went to Moab. Why would you go to Moab? Answer? There was a famine in the land. Ruth 1, verse 1. What land? 
Bethlehem, Judah. Bethlehem means house of bread and praise. That's what the word means. Yet in the ten years that Naomi journeyed in Moab, her husband died, her two married sons died, leaving her destitute with two widowed daughters-in-law, one of whom was Ruth. Hmm. At her return to Bethlehem, Naomi told the townsfolk, listen, don't call me Naomi. Her name means pleasant. Don't call me that. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Ruth chapter 1, verse 20 and following. Whoa. I went away full. Really? What about the famine? I mean, even a famine-starved land is full with Jehovah as your God compared to living as a pagan in Moab. Well, Abram is about to learn the same lesson in Egypt. And notice how Naomi blamed God for her misfortunes in Moab. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. I think it's a sad saga when we blame God for the hardships of our own poor decisions. But sinners always look for justification for their actions to ease their conscience, even when such justification lays the blame on God. Ooh. But I think to his credit, Abraham did not do this. He did not do this. But nonetheless, his little story in Egypt began a downward compromise of his faith in God. This was not a good move to go to Egypt. A downward spiral began with him. Involved a number of things. Number one, he left Bethel. That means the house of God. That's what the word Bethel means. He left Bethel for Egypt. The word Egypt means a besieged land, a place of fasting. What kind of trade-off is that? God's house for a besieged house. God's house of blessing for a house of fasting. Some would say, well, should we not assess the real situation? I mean, Egypt had food. Canaan was scraping by. People need to eat, don't they? 
in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, the devil came to him personally and tempted him in this very area of sustenance. Matthew records of Jesus. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. <laughs> what an understatement. I'm, I'm hungry if it's 40 minutes <laughs> past the supper hour. And I haven't eaten yet. I can't conceive an empty stomach that is 40 days since its last meal. I'm pretty sure that it was not been 40 days for Abraham before he headed out for Egypt. He isn't starving at all. But Jesus was. Nothing crossed his lips and entered his stomach for more than a month. And yes, scientists have established that such a fast is survivable. So what does a hungry man do when the tempter comes along and says, Since you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Matthew 4, verse 3. I would say that none of us would have been tempted by such a statement because none of us have the capacity to change stones into bread. In order for temptations to be a real pitfall to destruction, it has to match our capabilities. Did you ever think about that? A deaf man cannot be tempted to purchase an extremely expensive set of Bose speakers or earphones at the audio store. That would be a non-starter for a person like that. But he might be tempted to slander a fellow employee at work, to gain a promotion. Jesus was truly tempted because changing stones into bread was fully within his capabilities. So how did Jesus foil the devil's evil intent? Was he hungry? Yeah, the Bible says he was. Could he change stones into bread? <laughs> as easily as he changed water into wine. But he answered in this way. Man does not live on bread alone. But in every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 4 verse 4. This is a quote from Deuteronomy. Wherein Moses is explaining to Israel. How God cared for them in their wilderness wanderings. A desert where food became scarce. He, God, humbled you causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, writes Moses, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. That, of course, faith in God's word meant that the Israelites had to get up every morning and then harvest the manna before it evaporated in the sun, which they did do.
But Abram had no such dilemma. His problem was more spiritual. Yes, verse 10 says that there was a famine in the land and that it was severe. But Abram's solution was to leave Bethel and head to Egypt, to leave the house of God for the besieged fasting house of Egypt. This is a different kind of famine, and in Abraham's case, it was self-inflicted. It's part of God's curse on people to withdraw himself and his word from those who are blessed but unthankful. Blessed but full of ingratitude. Amos put it this way, The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea, wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Amos 8, verse 11 and 12. I thought of that in regard to our own country. We are surrounded by two great seas, the Atlantic and the Pacific. And if men search from the east to the west, would they find the word of God being taught? Or in our liberal churches, has the word of God been replaced with social things? In Abraham's case, he withdrew from God. He became the perpetrator of his own troubles by allowing his fear of starvation to overcome his faith. This was his first step in the downward track from trust in God. The second thing he did was Abraham left off his worship of God. Not good. Why would Bethel be named the house of God? That's what the word means. Verse 8. Because there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. That's why. But he left Bethel to go to Egypt. Can a person worship God while in the world? Some people think so. Many Christians try. But if you read ahead, you will discover that there is no altar in Egypt built by Abraham. There's no calling out to the Lord in prayer while he's in Egypt. His whole life switched from honesty to deception from being upright and above board in his dealings with Pharaoh to being a liar and a deceiver, which could have cost him his own life and that of Sarah's. And it did cost him, it did cost him his reputation and blanketed him with shame. Wow. That's some trade-off. His faith in God had been replaced by fear of men. 
Look at verse 11 and following. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Yeah, right. And then they will kill me, but they're going to let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. And he treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, maidservants, Men servants, camels, Genesis 12, 11 and following. Wow. Nothing like a fair-haired boy in the court of the king. Pharaoh had taken a liking to Sister Sarah, as he had been told. And Pharaoh was a man on the mood to make gorgeous Sarah part of his harem. She is so beautiful that Pharaoh was willing, even anxious, to pay a king's ransom to obtain her. Abram is showered with sheep, cattle, breedable donkeys, men servants, maidservants, camels. Chapter 13, verse 2. These are copious, copious gifts. Chapter 13, verse 2 says, Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. Yeah. Abraham was in the world packing it in, accumulating stuff. With every silver and gold coin, he was selling Sarah and his faith on the auction block of self-preservation. He was buying favor with Pharaoh, loving the world while forfeiting the worship of God. The altar of worship at Bethel, like Judas' betrayal of Jesus, had been replaced for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus has taught us no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 6, verse 24. Oh, but we try, don't we? James warns us, you adulterous people. He's writing to Christians. You adulterous people, don't you know <laughs> That friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to, chooses to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. James 4 verse 4. Well, let me tell you, Abraham was walking pretty close 
to the thin line between God and friendship with the world. I mean, Pharaoh is an idolater like Abraham's past associates. Nothing good can come from this. Now we think, I'm not really a friend of the world. I'm just... I'm, I'm just dabbling a bit. Flirting doesn't count, does it? You've heard the adage, those who play with matches get burned. And if the fire doesn't get them, the smoke will. They will come off smelling like a pagan, more so than as a saint. This was Abraham. He left off his worship of God to go of all places to Egypt. I wonder if we might be doing the same. Think about this. Sunday is our worship day, so set by Christ himself when he arose from the dead on Sunday, the first day of the week. Thus the day is sanctified in the church's calendar. But the world makes no such acknowledgement. Industries are open today and running. Stores are open and selling. Movie theaters are open and entertaining. All these and more beckon the Christian community in competition for about three hours a week. In which God calls us to worship him. The world is voracious. You think you're just. Dabbling in these things. Exercising a measure of Christian liberty. But the world will gobble you up. What starts out as a little here, a little there, will become a raging torrent to sweep you away from God and his people. I've seen it happen again and again. You miss one Sunday and, oh, then it's another Sunday and then, Maybe by the end of the month you've attended worship three times and missed two times. Thirdly, Abram relied on his wits to keep himself and Sarah safe. Cases escape you. The world is a dangerous place for believers and becoming more dangerous every day. Pharaoh was not a friend to the God of the Bible. He ruled Egypt, and so what he wanted, he took. If he saw a beautiful woman whom he prized for his harem, he simply conscripted her. And that's why he lavished such wealth on Abraham, Sarah's brother. He's doing what? He's paying a dowry so he can marry Sarah with Abraham's blessing. Now Abraham anticipated something like this, but not this. 
Something like, but not this. Upon coming to Egypt's border, Abraham devised a plan to have his own neck saved, which was for Sarah to keep hidden her full identity so that she was, don't tell that you're actually married to me. Say instead that you're my sister. Oh, um, by the way, guess what? Sarah was Abram's sister, his half-sister. Genesis 20, verse 12. She is the daughter of my father, though not by my mother. And she became my wife. Oh, I can just hear the devil, the father of lies, saying to Abram, Oh, clever move, my man. Very clever. You have walked that fine line between truth and error brilliantly. Sarah will be protected and the Egyptians will not be the wiser. But brethren, half-truths are whole lies in God's evaluation. We cannot play word games with people and expect to be exonerated. Abraham likely thought that Sarah would be able to live among the Egyptians unmolested, weathering out the famine, at which time they would pack up their belongings and discreetly slip back across the border unnoticed. And even though Sarah's stunning beauty might catch the eye of an Egyptian suitor, no one would have the wealth to pay for Sarah's dowry. It's a time of famine. People are pinching every dollar just to eat. So Abraham was living by his wits and his plan seemed to be working until, until Pharaoh stepped in to the mix. Oh, oh, no. Here was a person of means. Here was a person of power. Here is a person that had wealth for a dowry. What is more, he had the power to conscript beautiful Sarah without recourse for Abram. Verse 15 says of Sarah, she was taken into his palace. Uh-oh. Now what? What's Abraham going to do? His ploy has backfired. Sister Sarah has drawn the attention of the king of Egypt. The king wants her. The king is planning to marry her and make her a part of his family. How terrible. What's Abraham to do now? I want you to think about this. What can he do? By his wits, he has already done enough to seal Sarah's fate and his own. That's where it got, has gotten him. Brethren, it's no different than Israel's ploy in later years when they contracted with Pharaoh because he had so many horses and chariots. 
And God warned, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in multitudes of their chariots and in great strength of their horsemen, but they don't look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. But the Egyptians are men, and they're not God. And their horses, I'm still reading scripture, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. And when the Lord stretches out his hand, he who helps will stumble, he who is helped will fall, and both will perish together. Isaiah 31, verses 1 and following. Living by faith in God and living by your own wits They do not mix. Well, what a mess Abraham has made for himself in all of this. How's he going to get out of it? Well, it's going to take the almighty power of God's providential intervention to get him out. That's what. What do we mean by providential? Well, the word originates from the Latin providentia, means divine interposition. So the word providence, when you capitalize it with a capital P, stands for God, and especially when conceived as omnisciently directing the universe and the affairs of humankind with wise benevolence. Providence. Simply put, providence is God stepping in to help, to rescue, to direct events in such a way as to result in his will being accomplished through indirect means, but accomplished nonetheless. And we see this in operation in our text with Abram's sinful predicament. His ploy of using his wits to protect Sarah and preserve her and himself, that has all failed. He's lost his wife. (laughs) Pharaoh has had her removed to the women's quarters of his palace. Pharaoh plans to marry her, but she's already married, though Pharaoh has no knowledge of this. What can Abram do? I'll tell you what he can do. Nothing. He can do nothing. He has dug a hole so deep that he cannot free himself or Sarah from the pit. He is overwhelmed. He is powerless. He is drowning man swamped by the incompetence of his own cleverness. He forsook God. Praise God, God has not forsaken him. Verse 17 of our text says, But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. 
So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why did you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her. Go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men. And they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Genesis 12, verse 17 and following. Now how did God turn things around for Abram. Three providential interventions. Number one, the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. Whoa. Did you know that good health is a result of God's good graces to you? It has little to do a strong constitution, your genetic pool, appropriate diet, sufficient exercise, and on and on it goes. Forbes magazine years and years ago wrote about the London Marathon. It says at the 34th London Marathon, there were 36,000 runners participating on that Sunday. And during that time, the post-race death of a 42-year-old man was the event's second death in three years. Who dies as a marathon runner? In North Carolina, two men died, age 31, age 35, after collapsing at or near the end of a 13-mile marathon. Stories like this abound, including those of some granny who lived to be 103, smoking three packs of cigarettes daily all her life. Those who are fastidious about their health regiment and those who are utterly careless about such things, both are under the scrutiny of God of whom David declares, all the days ordered for me were written in your book before one of them ever came to be. Psalm 139, verse 16. God, brethren, is the giver of life. He's also the one who takes it. No one dies before their time. We shouldn't use that expression. Good health, bad health, God ordains it all to remind us that we are not masters of our own destiny. Secondly, Pharaoh was awakened to Abram and Sarah's deception. Of course, it's going to out, isn't it? So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. 
Notice that Pharaoh has made the connection between the diseases this household is experiencing and Sarah being Abram's wife. I don't know. Did he ask her? Did she just admit this? Notice, too, that he had the moral integrity to realize that he should not use his kingly authority to marry another man's wife. There are people in the world that have moral integrity. Say, well, they don't know God. That's, yeah. But God has built in that moral integrity as creatures made in the image of God. So God intervened through these providential interventions. There was yet a third providential invention, Pharaoh's willingness to expel Abram and Sarah without reprisals. You know, boy, uh, just think about this. Verse 19 and 20. Now then, here is your wife. Take her. Go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. What's that? Pharaoh did not demand that his dowry be repaid. Did Abraham go without Sarah or without the wealth that he had acquired in Egypt? No. Remember how embarrassing this was for Pharaoh as well as for Abram. He had been duped by a Jewish rancher from Canaan. Lesser men would have enacted disciplinary judgment to teach Abraham a good lesson and to save face. But God was watching over Abram even in his sin and even in his lack of faith. The lesson here for us is this. We do not know the extent of God's providential interventions in our lives. But we should be thankful for them. Just as the Bible asserts, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. So God can say, and he does say it, it was I who taught Ephraim how to walk, taking him by the arms. But they did not realize that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck, And I bent down to feed them. Hosea chapter 11, verse 3 and 4. But they didn't realize that either. Psalmist puts it this way. Love the Lord, all his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud he pays back in full. Psalm 31, verse 23. Where again, my comfort... In my suffering is this, your promise preserves my life, Psalm 119, verse 50. 
And then the most famous of all Psalms, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 23, verse 4. We cannot account for all the providential interventions of God in our lives. They're secret or untraceable or clouded in mystery, but they're there. God reminds us, praise the Lord, O my soul. Don't forget any of his benefits. Who forgives all of your sin, who heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfy your, your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. God's doing all that. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse you, but will be, he will harbor his anger forever. He does not treat you as your sins deserve. Or repay us according to our iniquities. Wow. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, as far as that, God has removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his child, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. Psalm 103, first 14 verses. I would say this. When you catch yourself dabbling in Egypt, living by your wits rather than by faith, indulging the pleasures of sin, forsaking the worship of God. The message of Abraham and Sarah to us is get out and get back. Not later, but now. Not after you have denied God and brought disrepute on his name. Get out immediately. Not when, like a dog, you have to limp back home with your ears drooped and your tail tucked between your legs. But before the evil days come and you suffer great loss. The world's golden carrot, which holds out in front of us, ends where? It ends in the abyss. We need to keep that in mind. You think it's hard to serve the Lord? harder to deny him and suffer the consequences. May God ever keep us faithful. Lord, we thank you for your word. We're not always faithful. We are subject to the solicitations of the evil one. And boy, he makes he makes the world look pretty appealing yummy but the end result is destruction why because he's a liar that's why 
He's a deceiver. This is his fare. This is what he does. He paints pictures with beautiful and bright colors, but really they're black as sin. Give us discernment. Help us to see this. Help us not to be fooled. Not to be tempted, drawn, even by our own lusts, into these things. Deliver us like you did Abram. Rescue us like you did him. For the glory of Jesus, we pray these things in his name. Amen. Okay, closing him. I don't have my bulletin up here. Does someone have it? 441. 441 in the brown? Four forty one in the brown. Take time to be holy. <clears throat> I'm gonna have to do it a cappella today, so if you can hear my voice while you're singing, you're not singing loud enough. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm.
this hymn too that had such a strong message it does take time to be holy we can't just <clears throat> put it off we can't think of it as, as something minor we have to dedicate ourselves to the whole project of being holy in our business dealings in our family relationships with one another in our interaction with our neighbors it takes time to be holy and I pray that you will help us to work on this because the scripture makes it very clear, and I'm quoting scripture, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. How true. But not our own personal holiness, it's the holiness of Christ worked out in us. Do that, Lord, for your own glory and our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. We are dismissed. <clears throat>